Hey everybody, Chris Lindsay here, and you're listening to Pitch List. We want to discover what makes creative people tick. Join us as we explore what it means to be a writer, and more importantly, what it means to be a person. Remember why you love music, and welcome to Pitch List. Hey, welcome to the Pitch List Podcast. I'm Chris Lindsay. Thank you for listening. We are so excited to announce that this episode of Pitch List is sponsored by Sweetwater, my go-to way to order new instruments and gear. Stay tuned for more info on them, and later in the episode, we'll be giving out an exclusive discount code to help you save on your first purchase with Sweetwater. For this week's episode, we traveled to Charleston, South Carolina, and caught up with my buddy, John Paul White. John started out his career in Alabama and split his time between Florence and Nashville. Along the way, he made several fantastic rock records and eventually teamed up with Joy Williams to create the Civil Wars. After that huge success, John has gone on to make several killer records, including his latest, The Hurting Kind. We sat down backstage at the Charleston Music Hall and had a long, rambling talk about songwriting, music row, and the business in general. John has a deep knowledge of the Muscle Shoals, Florence, Alabama music scene, as well as great stories from our years on Music Row. I really hope you enjoy my talk with John Paul White. Good afternoon. We've got a special on-location version of Pitch List. I'm sitting across the table from the one and only John Paul White. What's up, man? How are you? I'm dandy. Dandy, I, we were just talking. You've just come in on the bus through some sort of hell, hell storm. Yeah. It, it, we, you know, the romantic side of the music business, the it, uh, yeah. getting from A to B. Um, it's glamorous, isn't it? It's so glamorous, man. There's just women and drugs, <laughs> and it's just constant parties. And yeah. Yeah. So you are promoting i think i didn't run this by you but i'm pretty sure you're promoting your new record the hurting kind i am i, I had um because of this uh songwriter festival out here I, I routed some dates through chattanooga and athens to get here but um i don't know when this airs but um around may 1st i'll head out and i'll be going for about three months straight so wow yeah careful what you wish wish for because yeah. i told my folks i said you know what this time around, I'm ready to work. Tell me what to do, and I'll do it. And I may run screaming for the hills <laughs> afterwards, but and uh, by golly, they're doing it. So we're gonna we'll see the entire country in three months. I think it's fantastic. So yeah, it's all come. I, I understand now because you said you would take three mo- uh, three weeks off, and yeah. then you're gonna hit it hard, and that'll go yeah. into probably the summer season. Yeah, it'll, it'll get take us all the way to the 1st of August, and then I head over to the U.K. and Europe in uh, September. Wow. And then more to announce later, so, yeah. So you, you've played a lot in Europe, as far as I know, or you've done many tours over there. Mm-hmm. I've always had a question now that I'm uh, a little bit off topic, but uh, what's the difference playing over there? Or are there differences? 
There, there are differences. Crowds are different. That's and what it, I was kind of wondering. Well, talk it about. depends. Uh, it's city to city. You know, like Germany can be a little bit more rowdy, and but more often than not, uh, audiences over there are very quiet, very respectful. But then they're loud between songs. Okay, you know, they, they they really respect musicians and the craft and songwriting, and and so and on top of that, they're just so thankful that you're there because they know what time and expense it is for you to come over there and do it and so it's no big deal to us because you grow up wanting to play, sure. play london and Dublin oh, yeah. and munich and amsterdam that's what you you know but they look at it as it's your um a hardship for you to have to come over there to uh to play for people so it's uh it's different you know and people over here are probably more passionate on the surface. They're, they're less reserved about how they feel about what you do, which is intoxicating in its own way. So it's, you know, just different sides of the same thing. Yeah, I've noticed that just traveling over there. Yeah. You, it maybe some of the country and alternative Americana genres are not as popular in general in Europe, right. but the people that are into it may know everything about it oh, yeah. like just stuff you wouldn't imagine that they like they would know who played on your record very much so you and know I, two things about that i played in dublin and uh, i got toward the end of the set i think i was doing an encore and people just started hollering out requests but what they were requesting was like stuff from my first solo record from like 12 years ago mm -hmm. songs that were cut and were on tv shows that I haven't even released, and it, it was it was yeah. it was yeah. amazing. It was like, golly, my, I don't know that my mom knows that cut, right. much less you know. But I also, on the other side of that, is I talked to people from Muscle Shows, from you know the Swampers, like Jimmy Johnson, and Jimmy said he said I can't walk it down the street in Dublin or London. Somebody will recognize me and come over and, and very respectfully, but. They'll recognize me as a session side player who never was an artist, very seldom photographed. Random strangers will pick him out of a crowd. Yeah, over in London. there's something about it because also this is something I was going to touch on, but we'll go ahead right into it. You mm -hmm. being from Florence and the 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 history mm -hmm. of fame and what's the other one? Muscle Shoals. Muscle Shoals. Yeah. 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 Um, that was the apex in the world for music yeah. in the what late seventies. I would say the the biggest spike would be late sixties, early seventies. Early seventies. There was yeah. a lot going on in the seventies, but all the Atlantic stuff mostly right. was around that turn of the decade. Yeah, Aretha. Yeah, Wilson Pickett, Wilson Clarence Pickett. Carter. But because of those records the next wave of folks came over like the Rolling Stones and Rod Stewart and Joe Cocker and Paul Simon. They all came because of the Clarence Carter records and the Arthur Alexander records mm -hmm. and Percy Sledge. That's what caused that next wave of folks that came. And they, they had a big sign at the city limits that said, you know, hit recording capital of the world. Yeah. And it was. Well, it was in Rick Hall's mind. Yeah, I, that's where I was going next. Um, did Rick um, 
did he produce all those records or did they use his studio or was he always involved in production you're, also you're sort all of those things are sort of true he he started fame he actually started with billy sherrill um, which a lot of people don't know. No, I didn't know that. Billy went on to Nashville after mm-hmm. they disbanded, and Rick kept fame, which was Florence, Alabama Music Enterprises. That's Didn't know fame. that either. Yeah, it started in Florence and moved over to Muscle Shoals when mm-hmm. Billy left town and went north, and, and obviously he had his own. Made many yeah. famous country many, records. As a producer, as, as a, producer, a songwriter, songwriter yep. fantastic. And most people don't know he's from Florence. But um, Rick started his place, and then he had Arthur Alexander, and, and that really was the, the catalyst. That's what got people paying attention, because he was a local guy. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, at Jerry Wexler at Atlantic heard the records that Rick was making, started sending artists down. So once that happened, he had a core... Uh, rhythm section that played on most of those records and the original one was david briggs right uh, jerry kerrigan norbert putnam yep. all these guys that went to nashville and were played with elvis and yeah. neil young norbert putman did yeah. a neil young record right yeah. uh, david um, briggs did uh norbert did like dan fogelberg and jimmy yeah. buffett and played with yep. elvis and i mean it's ridiculous that was the first rhythm section well they left and here come the swampers well, the Swampers ended up um, deciding, you know what, we should do this on our own, where um, Rick was legendary for not being so easy to work with. Right. And there's a legendary story about when Aretha was there, and, and there was a, just a huge explosion of a fight. And they, not long after that, they started Muscle Soul Sound. Well, that's when the Stones came and did Wild Horses and Brown Sugar and... Uh, Paul Simon came and did 50 Ways and, and Kodachrome. And, I didn't uh, know Kodachrome was done there. Yeah. They, they, he came in with one song thinking it would take them, you know, days. And they knocked it out in like, you know, 30, 40 minutes. He was like, oh, God, we got, I, I've got all this time. Right. And started pulling stuff out. And they, wow. Uh, and yeah. he just had Kodachrome like laying around or something that, that might have been the first one they did okay but it's it's fascinating it really is what do you think and then we'll i, I don't want to spend too much time on this but mm-hmm. i am fascinated and i've uh from us working together th- through the years i know that you know a lot you're one of the best guys to really talk to about this because it's uh-huh. your area and you yeah. really know a lot um what's your take on what was happening there is it is it the the, the studio itself? Because no. I've been in the studio. It's um, it's underwhelming. Yeah. As far as a studio. Yeah. It's just a building, and yeah. mo- most of those places are just buildings. It's the people. It's the people in there, and Rick deserves the lion's share of the credit. I mean, all those musicians. He was, and I would advise everybody go watch the documentary because yeah, it, it's really it, great. It paints the picture really well. But Rick was just so stubborn. And in ways, he was ignorant and not in a uneducated way, but just he just decided, why do I have to be in Nashville or New York or L.A. to make hit records? I don't need to do that. I'll just make them right here and there'll be hits from here, which no one was doing. But he just had the guts to do that sort yeah. of thing. Well, and it's a, and it's a it's not it's not a big town. No, it's Muscle Shoals. Muscle Shoals was 
hardly even incorporated at the time. Mm-hmm. Florence was a thing. Tuscumbia right. was a thing in yeah. Sheffield, but he put Muscle Shoals on the map. I yeah, mean, it was barely there. And you see pictures of the studio. It's just a big field around it right. at the time. But he had the gall and you know the nerve to start it up. And to be fair, he got he got lucky in many ways at the beginning with uh, Jimmy Hughes doing Steal Away and Arthur Alexander with Anna and You'd Better Move On. Those things clicking right off the bat. Mm-hmm. People started paying attention and gave it uh, credence. But I've always said that because of that, because these guys were so green and so innocent, you know, mm-hmm. they just came in wet behind the ears, and none of them imposed their own um, will on the songs. All they did was played what was best for that song. And that's why I always say there is no muscle shell sound. You listen to Motown records, you know a Motown record when you hear it. Yep. Because they all, you hear a Stax record, you know it. Um, but with Muscle Shoals, they typically played whatever was best for that song at that moment for that artist. And most people that came to town had their biggest hits when they came to town. Aretha was floundering until she came to the Shoals. And I think it's because of all those guys like Spoon Roldham and David Hood and Jimmy Johnson are all selfless. Yeah, and all they cared about was make creating the best thing they could that day, and it. They probably don't get the credit they deserve because people hear some of their stuff and don't know it's a Muscle Shoals track. Yeah, I think um, they was, were they were making a ton of money and yeah. they were probably happy to be in the studio. Oh yeah, and they weren't. You know, there's a thing that happens in Nashville. We've talked about this before, and it's no one's fault. You know, there's such great players in Nashville. I mean, really, the best in the world at those instruments. But they can get into a thing to where they're just too good. Like, they've done it too long. They're so precise. And they they lose, like, stupid teenager approach, you know? And I wonder if that's part of it, too, the Muscle Shoals guys. There's just a freedom in... Not being the, you know, I don't know. Good. Help me out. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I am a walking testimony to that. And I think it's so true. They're, they're it just, is. it happens in the, in the Nashville arena of making demos. I, the, you know, you're trying to give notes to them in the middle of tracking. And I find myself many times just saying, play it dumber. It's yeah. just play it dumber. Oh, yeah. Less notes. Play it like you're 17. You don't even know what the hell you're doing. Can you play half as many notes as you just right. played? That right. Kind of, and yeah. I had somebody in a session. I remember who it was. It was somebody. It was an A guy. Mm-hmm. And he was like, man, playing dumb is hard. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And and I knew what he was getting at. You know? and, yeah. But these guys, they were given everything they had, which was... They were painting with like primary colors, right? You know, they didn't all these nuanced things. They, they just came at, and I asked David Hood. I was like, "What were you listening to? How were you that kind of bass player in those sessions?" He said, "I was learning on the job." Yeah. He said, "I came in a trumpet player." Yeah. And he said, "I watched Tommy Cogbill. You know, I watched those guys play, and I just locked it into my head, and I, I came up with my own thing because." my hands would do a certain thing you know it wasn't i wasn't appropriating anybody else's thing but he said i was learning i was picking it up as quick as i could so they weren't kids out of the conservatory they weren't kids out of college and with a ton of theory background and stuff they were on the job figuring it out and 
credit to all of them that they were, you know, naive enough to do it. Yeah. And I've been in, you know, it's been a while, but I remember touring in the South and, you know, after the show, we'd end up at an after hours bar, like in Jackson, Mississippi. I remember Mm -hmm. one night this bar doesn't even open till two, right? There's like a band bass players got three strings. He's mid the groove. I mean the like just insane pocket and groove that, you know, where you're at in your life as a player really has a lot to do with how you play. And I think in Nashville, sometimes the guys, you know, look, they, they get successful and they, they, uh, they make pretty good money and you're no longer feeling that raw pain. You've got this math game going on. Well, to, to carry that further and carry that toward Nashville and toward, Mm -hmm. toward songwriting, I think a lot of people, and we've all gotten into this game is that, that, we haven't really kept our costs as low as we should. You know, we've, we've, there's so many material things that we, or, or even just rungs of the ladder that we're trying to attain and we got to have a hit. And when we have a hit, we got to have a hit that's twice as big as that one. And right. It's constant. And so what we do in a smaller town, what, what people do in satellite communities is they don't, they don't aspire to the same things that people in the heart of Nashville probably do. There's no rat race. You know, you're, there's no competition in the shows. There's none. Everybody right. lifts each other up. You know, and, and Yeah, you've been there for a while, right? I want to talk yeah. more about that. I just want to kind of get that established. Yeah. You never left Florence, right? Because no. the years we worked together, you would drive up to yeah. Nashville. Yeah, I did So that you've since, stayed there. Uh, since ni- I got my first deal with EMI in 98 through Walt Aldridge, mm-hmm. and I drove back and forth for... Um. Wow, ten years solid. Right. Yeah. Usually two to three to four days a week, crashing on, uh, you know, Glenn Middleworth. I'd yep. crash on his couch yep. or, or any couch I could find. Sure. Um, if you were going to stay for a work. couple of days. Yeah. Yeah. And I think. Do you think that has? I'm sure it has a lot to do with who you are as an artist. Hundred yes, percent. Because it is a different mentality in a smaller mm-hmm. town. It it is and. People look at you different, too. You know, when you get into a co-write, where are you from? And if you say Franklin, they're going to be like, oh, okay, cool. Or, mm-hmm. or, but you say you're from Muscle Shoals. Sure. A whole di- and, and even if it weren't that city, just someone that comes at it from an outsider's perspective, someone that comes in for a couple of days and then gets out before it starts growing on you, before you start becoming part of right. the mold, um, it it's it's it was great for me and and EMI appreciated it because I was never meant to be a, a typical music row writer. That was in the day, and it, it probably still happens. But that was in the day when publishers, especially major publishers, really diversified their rosters. And so I was the guy that when someone from L.A. or New York would come in, they'd always pair me up with them right. because I could do that. Right. really easily if they had trips going to london or whatever i'd be that guy but also when somebody like rascal flats wanted to cut a song that was not necessarily going to be a radio single but something that they loved to play 
that was a little more left-leaning, a little more edgy. And more credibility. I Well, I don't know. I, I think that's I'm, what they're after, too. Maybe. I, yep. I don't want to give myself too much credit. No, I, I will. I, I will. That's I, what it was. They, <laughs> you know, they know that they're, you know, they know what they've got to do, and they know what type yeah. of songs they need for this and that, but they also want to put a song on their record that, like you said, that they're proud yeah. of. Well, I, I, and you were that guy. I was that guy, and it was a time when mechanicals you could just live on mechanicals sure. you didn't have to have a radio single nope. to because um, that record sold like six million records yeah mcgraw rascal flats faith mark yeah. any of those records you could yep. you could uh you know wash your whole deal yep you know and and be and that's, and what that's I did. not there that's what i did i i i had almost i had very few singles but i had a good a good career going mm-hmm. just uh getting on those records and uh, I thought maybe that's just what I'd always do. I think I kind of saw the writing on the wall that it, you know, as downloading became more apparent and not necessarily pirating, but the way people bought records, the way that people listened to records was changing and the way that they didn't buy as many physical records, the way that was tapering. And there was still some people that were selling them, but you could watch whatever happened with rock and roll was going to happen to country. It usually took about five or six years right. for those trends to affect yep. because country music listeners are a little more uh, entrenched in the way that they consume the material. Yep. So like my parents are probably never going to download a record, but eventually those generations, they will. And so it's all, it's taken a little longer for country music audiences to do that, but I could see it coming that, okay, I'm not going to get by that much longer not having singles. I get it. So yeah. you you saw down the road that yeah. the idea of living off mechanicals. Yeah. Yeah. I I I feel like I saw it coming as far as what they used to call the jute box in the sky, mm-hmm. which I thought was a great way. But it actually that's what it that's what it turned into. Um so were you always gunning to be an artist or was there ever a point where you thought I'm going to just be a writer. You you were always, because you had several deals since I've known you. You had a, mm-hmm. a deal on Epic. Uh, or Capital. Capital. Yeah. No, I, you I had just, two or three records that you made along the way. I only wanted to sing. I, I okay. didn't get into this to write songs. I didn't grow up writing songs. I loved creative writing. I mm-hmm. wrote you know poetry and things like that. But living in a tiny town just outside of the Shoals, it didn't really feel attainable to be a songwriter uh even though nashville was only two hours away i didn't know anyone in my community that did it for a living or even aspired to do it for a living the shoals um had hit a pretty good dry spell in the 80s and 90s so that didn't really feel like a place that i was going to go make my hay so i just wanted to sing and the only reason that I signed a deal was to get my foot in the door so I could become a singer. And as I did it, as I wrote songs just to have a deal, I learned, not only did I love it, but I learned who I was as an artist. And the more I wrote songs, the more I realized what made me click, what gave me goosebumps, what gave me goosebumps about other people's songs, or if I'm in the room with a writer, that I really respect the the angles that they would take on it. I started really, really picking apart the craft of it, how to how to create a song that 
I love, but also that other people love. And it and it's a foundation that I continue to use. But really, all I wanted to do was sing. Yeah. Don't go away. Pitch List will be right back after the break. Our friends at Sweetwater have partnered with Pitch List for this episode to give you an exclusive discount on their products, only for podcast listeners. Sweetwater is more than just a place to buy the latest instruments and music gear. They have the best customer service in the industry, always help you pick the right gear for your needs, and even offer expertise after the sale to make sure it works perfectly. On a personal note, I have used Sweetwater for years. My sales guy is the most knowledgeable rep I have ever dealt with. He always gives great advice on which product I actually need. And now, through May 30th, Pitchlist listeners can get 10% off their phone order. Just call Sweetwater at 800-222-4700 and use the offer code PITCHLIST10, exclusive for Pitchlist listeners. Available for call-in orders only, not for orders on their website. And now, back to the show. And you know, um, I think that's the the absolutely incredibly positive thing about the Nashville songwriting experience is the knowledge transfer. Yeah. You know, and not, I think it's almost 100% positive. Just yeah. how things are put together, like you said, yes. what it, different takes on a title or a concept or, you know, there's a certain amount, there's a lot of cynical behavior that goes on with that that's not positive. Mm-hmm. But in general, I didn't think about songs. When I moved to Nashville, I was an instinctual writer mm-hmm. and I'd written some things that a couple of publishers liked. They weren't going to get cut. But it never even occurred to me until I met some of these country writers, even though their style I didn't particularly love musically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were big thinkers, and they, they yeah. taught me how to do that. And I never even thought of that before. Yeah. And uh, I think any, any – don't you think any format you're in, any style, you're going to be better going through that yeah. as far as the music that you make. And it's, it's going to be lost, you know, because a lot of these – craftsmen are not going to be able to keep their head above water yeah. as mechanicals keep dwindling to nothing. Their piece of the pie keeps getting smaller and smaller. Yep. And so people like me that come into the business aren't going to get those two, three, four years to really learn their craft. And then, you know, their songs go out into the world and, and hopefully connect with people that, that learning curve will be gone. You have to walk in the door writing a song for the radio. You do. And in addition, I think that um, as the as that income goes away, you're gonna get you're gonna get mostly artist writers. Yeah. And you're not gonna have those craftspeople to sort of give that knowledge. We're getting there. I think it'll be generational. You know yeah. uh, people you know, probably from their 20s up at the moment, still look at it as a brass ring that you can still grab. Right. But that's not entirely true. And, you know, you and I have had this conversation before. I don't I don't look at it. I'm, I'm not chicken little about it. I'm not. No, you know, no, I, I'm not either. Because I'm learning to adapt to the world that we live in. And because because you have to. And sitting around and whining about it ain't going to no. do you any good. No. But 
analyzing it will do you good. Learning what the trends have been and what got us here and where that's heading and try to catch it, you know, where it's, where it's going. And that's a lot of trial and error. But again, back to keep your costs low, keep your overhead low, yep. you keep your aspirations and your expectations reasonable. And you can have a long, Absolutely. fulfilling career in this business. And it also is going to drive, I think, the, the upside of all this is the music's going to be better. Because you're going to get way more owner-operators like you who are making your own music, releasing your own music, touring on that music with a lower yeah. overhead. So maybe you don't have 50 semis and a catering team. Right. Well, you could if you wanted to. You yeah. could do that if you wanted to. Yeah. That's a choice. Yeah. But, but I think since we're in the, in the streaming world, better music wins because yeah. I think people have great taste and you can see what people like yeah. and you don't have those executives between the people and the music making bad calls yeah. that they did. I think that is very true everywhere, but possibly music row because I think it's going, it's been built on that system of songwriters cranking out great songs, artists singing those great songs, radio playing those songs. It's been that way for so long that it's going to it's going to take longer for Nashville to adapt to that. Agreed. If if you make if you made Nashville right now only put out songs that artists wrote, which we're rapidly getting there, um, the quality of the songs is going to drop significantly. Nashville will have to as A and R will have to change their parameters for how they sign artists. If all those songwriters go away, yep. then you don't sign a guy that's just a good interpreter of song. You can't sign that guy anymore. No, because he won't have any material. No. And I would even argue that if you look at a chart, a uh, country chart in the last couple of years, there's like, you know, three female songs. Yeah. That's a direct result of Taylor Swift being a badass writer. Yeah. In the wake of Taylor Swift, they signed a lot of girls who uh, they expect to write their own records. Mm -hmm. And right. I think um, I know from my world, uh, the things that are are doing best are female oriented. I think the things that uh, the female singer songwriters right now are pretty much all I listen to and my 16 year old as well. I feel like they're taking more chances. I think mm -hmm. they're more. Um, more brave with what they say. They're not beholden to being, you know, to any sort of rules of being macho and whatever it is that a man seems to think that he needs to say that is prevalent in country music right now. And I think that's why you see streaming numbers uh, tilting toward the female artists in town, Casey Musgraves. Yeah, now I, I'm agreeing with you about the writing. You know, yeah. this idea of they're not taking any outside songs those outside songs were driving, you know, the awareness of the artist. Right. But I would put Casey Musgraves in a, t a whole other category. Mm -hmm. She's, I mean, she's, that's a whole other animal. Yeah. The reason that that's true is because Casey is, has got, um, is very confident and very strong and, and strong-willed and says what she thinks, sings what she wants, and sings it in the way that she wants. And more and more people are going to become emboldened to do the same thing. And that's why 
anybody that's not cheering for her and people like her is crazy. Um, but I also think that songs end up getting steered toward the guys that are cutting big hits, that are sure their voices yes. always click at radio. Radio loves these guys. They those songs end up in their in their oh, yeah. pockets, you know. And that's always been the case. Songs yep. always go to the to the people that are selling the most records. Well, and they influence the whole writing community because yeah. if Blake Sheldon is making a record, man, you want on it as a yeah. writer. Because yeah. he 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 has the profile, he's in position, he he will have radio hits yeah. as long as he sings hits. Yeah. But um but, but you, it, al- you also have all these people that are writing songs up there that tailor their songs toward that sort of song. Um, right. Because if he doesn't cut it, well there's fifteen other exactly. dudes that sing that kind exactly. of stuff. So the glut of the songs that are being written are written for men because one will cover 20 of them, you know, but you write a song for female. Uh, okay, that's a good point. You write a female uh, yeah. perspective song, you got about three or four. The girls that are working are writing their own material. There's See, not a pitch. There and, and it's all cyclical because the females that are making records in Nashville, they're writing all their own material because the female-oriented material in Nashville sucks. Mm-hmm. So they have to write their own right. material. And anything that is outside, there's probably one in ten that is, gar- that is, that is tailor-made for, that is, you know, with a female perspective. And so outside of that, they have to create their own. And I'd like to think that that's all going to change as, as these, two things, as the songwriting community dwindles, then those that amount of songs is going to dwindle and art men are going to have to start writing their own songs and then they'll get found out because they don't have all these songs that are being put in their pockets they're going to have to write their own material then you're going to find out who's the charlatan and who's the real artist yeah bet you money it'll be the women in nashville that'll be found as the real artists in nashville I would not disagree with that. And I'd say you can look back um, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, even when the females were cutting outside songs, they made more adventurous, more interesting records than males ever did. They took more chances. They have always done it. Hmm. But even back in the day, uh, a faith record would be way more, you know, interesting Mm -hmm. than a Tracy Bird record. That would be more traditional and, and it, and it's another another long conversation of you know women in Nashville are supposed to look pretty and sing pretty right. and be you know be sexy you know that and faith that, was all those yeah, things yeah, yes and you know what that's another thing man I know you know this but I mean back back when we were like meeting at EMI and we we're writing you know mm-hmm. twelve years ago whatever. Mm-hmm. They these record companies they number one priority was they signed a sexy person hmm. and they did it for males too I mean but especially women hmm. it's like the first thing they would if they said a new female's name the first question was the first thing they would tell you about her is she's hot hmm. but I remember just being like what yeah that, does that come across in the radio I don't think it does I don't know 
What is this? I don't have an answer to no, why they would up. do that's it. No, it was messed up. That's the answer. It was messed but up. But it's still, you know, it's years and years of of that is still being fought against, and there's still yes, a knee jerk. Um, so when you have uh, a female artist come along that's really traditionally country, it's an uphill battle. And yeah, and even somebody that has a has a uh, you know star power like Leanne Womack. How is she not all over the radio making I don't know. amazing country records? Is there records a like better shows? working female country singer than Leanne Womack? I don't think I so. I don't know of one. But I still say the the fact that we're moving to streaming is going to is is going to be better for all of this. I do because too. people like real music and they like real artists. Yeah. And and it will win out. Mm. I really believe that. And there I really do. I really yeah. think we'll get more great records and and real artists. I I do. I also think there's just a lot more records. There's a lot more people out there doing it because it doesn't cost you a thing. Yes. To, you can make a record with GarageBand in yep. 20 minutes. You and, and I can mic. sit down and make a record and have it up on all streaming platforms by the end of the day. Yes. And so there's so much noise. And so as you know, we have a little record label back home called Single Lock Records, and I would say the bulk of our time is spent we believe in our records. We truly believe in the records we have. All of our time is spent trying to get it to your ears. Because we right. firmly believe that if you hear it, you're going to love it. But just you hearing it is by far our, our hardest job. Well, and even you know what we're talking about 12 years ago, it was not unusual for them to spend a million dollars promoting a new artist yeah. on, on RCA in, in 2004. Yeah. And you know, it, what I mean, a million dollars. Yeah, it's and crazy. that was to get them. That was the same thing. That was to get them heard. Yeah, you know. And, but there was so much fewer avenues for people to hear it. That's why right. radio was right. so powerful and is still, still very powerful yes, in the country very, world. Yes, probably it is. more than anywhere. But that's going to go away as well because it will. they won't be the gatekeepers they used to be. And major labels aren't the gatekeepers they used to be, nope. where you had to have major distribution. Or no one would ever hear your record. I mean, that you should definitely go see. There's a there's a documentary about Big Star and how no one could buy their record because their distribution fell apart. Anyone that wanted that record, it was not available. And it's sometimes hard to wrap your head around that. Um, that if that record store didn't have your record, you were screwed. It was you would make no money. And we've got we've gotten to this place where it's so easy to consume music now that it's hard to remember that. And so, I'll I'll make an unpopular uh, statement here that majors did one good thing about majors is that if they weeded out a lot of crap, they definitely signed some stuff that wasn't good, and they signed some stuff that was brilliant. But they weeded out a lot of stuff that didn't have any business having a record out there in the world that we're now having to cut through, have to right. wade through I get that. to get to your I ears. get that. I th Yeah. Yeah, because that, like you said. That's about it. That's it, the, about the only positive thing I'll say. Yeah, about, but about it's true that, because but. I get it. I get what you're saying. I mean, yeah. the noise has got to be incredible to yeah. uh, to sort of break through that and, and even be heard. Right. And, of course, the same things that, that all happened with radio – I see them all happening with streaming. There are streaming yeah. gatekeepers now. Oh, yeah. Playlists. 
You, can you even imagine what's going on to get those to get records in front of those people? I can totally imagine. We yeah. do it. We do it every day. Yeah. So yeah. a lot of it's just the game. It's not. It's not a new game. Hmm. It's just a new technology. Yeah, it's a new and a paradigm. New, yeah. But and what's good about it is also what's bad about it. And on the other side of that, you know, monetarily, the way that because physical has is going away and has gone away for a lot of artists. And streaming is a thing, and there's you know less money made on the front end of all this. If you can't play, if you can't right. go out and play live, well, you're a dinosaur. You're dead in the water, and that's going to be good in the long yeah. run. Yeah, and it's for another good thing, yeah. yeah, yeah, because you have to. And you know what? I started seeing it maybe eight years ago. You would see mm -hmm. even country artists. I remember when Brantley Gilbert came up. When I first met him, he was doing like twenty five hundred paid tickets mm. in, in certain areas in Georgia mm. with no record deal. Mm. And then you see more and more of those type of people who could, who had actually toured and built followings. And, uh, yeah. um, again, I think that's a good thing, you know, cause there was a lot of that too, with major labels. Of course there there were people that there were careers that were built on Dude. people who could not sit in this room and do anything I for knew, us. You I know knew. what I mean? I wrote with many people back in the, in the two thousands, especially that they had they got a deal, and we were writing stuff for their first record, and they were talking about how nervous they were about going out on the road because they'd never played shows. Yeah, they'd never played a club in their life. Yeah, I just couldn't. Yeah, write. but they were great singers, and they had sung a really good demo, and they looked the part, and they got a deal, and they'd never gone out and learned how to entertain a crowd, and I thought. This is the beginning of the end. This will, this will, this is doomed. Yeah. Well, and to add to it, uh, you know, computers came along, auto tune. Yeah. You know, people were being tuned before auto tune. Sure. There were tricks. Yeah. But, but again, it was that was like if you had a stellar performance with yes. one bad note. See, here's another part of the equation that is changing because people don't take the time to learn their craft, and that's singing because. They know it can be fixed. It can always be fixed. It yep. can always be pitch corrected. And so people don't spend the hours and hours and days and years working on their technique and singing in clubs and working on their mic technique and getting to where their pitch is good and knowing how you know to nail that big note and then come right back down to something really small. You don't have to when you're in the studio. You know, somebody's got a fader and somebody's got picture, pitch correction and limiters and everything. Um, so there's a there's a big part of the learning curve that's just gone away by having that technology. And it's found out when you put them out there on the road. Yeah, it yeah. is. Now, um, let's shift gears a little bit because sure. I'm sure you're going to have to sound check soon. <laughs> well, first, I wanted to ask you now your new record. Um, you played me a couple tracks last summer. Yeah, but are those on this record? I believe so. There's, there's some classic country writers yeah. you had written with. Yeah, that's what. That's about when I started making the record. So yeah, that. And they been. were just phenomenal. Thank you, just man. Just phenomenal. I mean, I I set out with this record. You know, long story short, it was kind of the first time I'd sat down and made a record with a blank sheet in front of me and said, "Who are you? What right. do you want to say? Who do, who you know? What what do you want to sound like?" Because with my first solo record on Capitol, I'd written for 10 years for Nashville, so I had all these songs I could choose from. So I just picked my best songs. 
And then with Civil Wars, everything's 50-50. It's, it's give yeah. and take, and so it's not just you. It's, right. Um, and with Beulah, which I made a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. it just fell out. It was like no real thinking involved, just catching it as quick as I could. So this is the first time in all my years of doing this that I sat down and said, all right, who are you? And I had been listening nonstop to Chet Atkins, Bill Porter, Fred Foster produced records, RCA Studio B stuff, Orbison, Patsy, all that classic stuff, the mm-hmm. lush Nashville sound, countrypolitan thing. And I had been lamenting the fact that I couldn't find any records like that anymore, especially from guys. Yeah, I think females are, are yep. there. There are some of those, but but uh, you know the troubadour, the 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 guy standing out front with the rose in his teeth and just going for the drama and not being ashamed of it. And so I decided, well, then I should just go create that thing that I'm looking for. And it's funny, Beverly Cleary. Uh, just turned 103 and so they had these quotes that were attributed to her and she said if there's a book that you want to read and you can't find it then write it and which is exactly what I did that's great so in order to do it I thought I know there's a bunch of amazing songwriters in and around Nashville that wrote those songs that I grew up loving and that were my idols and I guarantee you, I can get in the room with them. If I, if, if I do, I'm going to sit at their knee and I'm going to wear them out for stories and hopefully we write a song. But the main thing I wanted to take from it was I wanted to sing in front of them. I wanted to write songs and play them songs and them look at me and give me the thumbs up that I was on the right track. I needed that from those guys. And so I worked with Whispering Bill Anderson and Bobby Braddock and Whitey Schaefer and Waylon mm-hmm. Holyfield and Paul Overstreet, you know, and so, and it uh, clicked every time. And three of the songs on the record are from those sessions. And I'll probably put out an EP or a, or a record of, of the rest of the stuff at some point. But that started everything off. I had written a couple songs, worked with those guys, and then everything just came falling out sort of set the template for what you would do yeah and the one the couple tracks i heard with you um might have been the whispering bill anderson song so it was so interesting because you hear them you can sort of hear them in it Mm -hmm. but it's also you and it's also somehow like really modern too good you know what i mean it's like and it's got a little bit of uh craziness in it too it's like it's really what I walked away from, I really wanted to play them for Amy, and I knew you couldn't leave them. So, mm. but they're they're like fun. They're fun to listen. It's yeah. like it's it, there's Thank something you. really exciting about them to me. Thank you, you know? very much. I really mean that. I mean, it's like it's not it's not a mania. It's just mm. the, they're very exciting. Just because you don't you know you don't know where the lyrics really going on the one or the two that I heard, right. and and you're kind of like on the edge of your seat. Good. And the production's fabulous too. Um, I think it's a great idea. And Thank those you. those guys, Bobby Braddock. I mean, good lord, yeah. Yeah. some of those songs. I yeah. mean, I mean, D I V O R C E, yeah. and he yeah. stopped loving her today. And I, when I wrote with Bobby, and I told him the idea for the song, it's a song called "This Isn't Going to End Well." And I said the the premise behind the song is uh, 
um, kind of what it sounds like that, you know, somebody's, you know, guarding their heart. They, they know this is a bad idea and, and let's keep it vague. So it doesn't have to be infidelity or anything like that. Whatever it is, it's just, I don't want to go into this relationship and I feel you pulling me in. And he sat there and he said, there's walls around the walls around my heart. And I was like, oh, my God. So I said, I guess I'll be taking dictation now. And, and so off we were. And that song ended up being a duet with Leanne Womack. Oh, okay. But we didn't intend it to be a duet. But once I, when I went to do the demo, just me and a guitar, but really clean demo mm-hmm. of it, I realized that that option was there in spades because it seemed a lot more intriguing to me, the sentiment, I shouldn't be with you. That's fine. But when two people are singing, I shouldn't be with with you, and they both know it, and they're both singing it back and forth to each other, that's so much more powerful. Sure. And Leanne and I had talked about working together for for years. We, We should do something together. Yeah, we should totally do that. And then, you know, you don't. And I thought, for this record, and with Bobby being a co-writer on it, I'm going to shoot my shot and see if she says no. All she can do is say no. And she jumped in with both feet. That spot, that angsty spot of, I shouldn't be doing this, mm. but I'm going to, mm. that's the best. That's my, that's, that's like my yeah. favorite. I think people live in that. It Everybody does. Yeah, man. I, I like writing like that. I just love those songs like that because I think, that's how people are it's not cut and dried it's not black and white nothing is and it doesn't even have to be regarding love everything is a yeah is a series of uh questions and answers and and you're trying to rationalize what you're doing or or you're there's guilt involved because you might not should but it feels good and it's just and that's got to got to do with your job it's got to do with your diet it's got to do with exercise or the way you parent your children everything is just constant push and pull of what what's okay and what's not okay and i'd much rather write about that gray area than the cut and dried why don't you love me because i love you yeah boring yeah it is boring. It's been said in yeah. so many amazing ways that I, I that just doesn't intrigue me anymore. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd rather, I'd rather, you know, and I do it with production as well. I'd rather there be dissonance and tension and things not, things coming as, as a curveball, production-wise, but also lyrically mm-hmm. and also melodically when I sing. I get bored, and I don't and want you, you know getting what? bored. You have. You definitely have your own style as a singer, but you just kind of opened a window in my mind. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what you do with melody. You're very unpredictable, yeah. and it's fun to listen to because you can usually a lot of singers you can or well when I say that whoever wrote the melody mm-hmm. you you can see where they're going. I mean they're you know oh, there's yeah. certain you grooves. Do this long yeah, enough. yeah. You yeah. you can see where um you you do are very surprising with your note choices and it's uh, and not always sometimes you'll do a traditional thing and yeah. and wait for it and lay in the weeds and then you'll do it and but it's it really stronger it does it makes and the straight parts stronger yeah, yeah and it's it's really exciting to listen to thank you because i think that's a big part of it you got to be careful with it yeah you can't you know with with, with great power comes great responsibility yeah. if you're always throwing curveballs then you know they're 
it's not a curve anymore. Right. You know? And uh, we talk about it, my son and I talk about it, he, he loves metal. And there's sections in, you know, that are basically breakdowns. Uh, he calls it something else. I don't remember what he calls it. But um, when it goes halftime or right, it goes quiet right. and it's just the riff and drums or whatever. And, you know, we, we all use that. He loves those sections. I said, I said, I get why you love them. But if the whole song is that, sounds that way, you'd mm-hmm. be bored to death. You got to have both. Right. You got to have the 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 straight tempo. You got to have this other thing so that that there's a juxtaposition juxtaposition between the two. That's why it works. The silence works if there's other things you know sure. building around it. That's, so yeah, it's constant juggling act. And that's the dynamics of it. I think that happens in lyrics too. Um, oh yeah. If you've got a chorus that's going to make a it answers a question, then you need to write a verse that's questioning. Yep. You know, you need to be going somewhere. You oh, yeah. like there was one number from Sweet Chastity. Sweet Chastity. I didn't know the musical, but it's the Hey Big Spender. Mm-hmm. With the minute she walks in the room. Yeah. In the original version, man, they go from whispering to like yelling and back. And it's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. And I realized, man, People don't use dynamics as much as they used to, Man. and it's so effective. And that's really what's happening with the metal thing. I, They're dropping down, they come back true. up. I, I live and die. With yeah, you dynamics. do. You actually, you do yeah. all your stuff. Even the stuff with the Civil Wars, it, yes. it was like that. It would yeah. go from a hundred miles an hour to two. Yeah, and, and that that shakes your audience up, and it and it yeah. keeps them on their toes. It's 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 a very uh, very powerful weapon, especially when it's you and a guitar. And yeah. you know, I I don't want to play solos. I don't aspire to. I'm not intrigued. I, I'm not into that anyway. Mm-hmm. So there's only so much you can do. I mean, your melodies and your chord structures are going to be interesting for a while. But if it's all at the same level, so I get it to a whisper. I get off the mic, mm-hmm. and then I bury it up. You know. And so uh, I'm going to keep you. It, it also works for people talking in the room yeah the quiet I, I see musicians and they they dig in when they hear people talking like that's the opposite of what you should do you should get so quiet that everybody's hearing them speak and they will shut up i guarantee it if you've got the guts to do it mm-hmm. step off the mic or just get really quiet and play really softly they will shut up guaranteed yeah. Yeah, and it has the effect of making the audience lean in. Yep. Well, man, I really appreciate this. We've sat here for almost an hour. I knew we would. I knew we would talk. We, we, we could, could do. We could, yeah. We could do a Ken Burns. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we could do 24 hours straight because um, yeah. we've known each other a long time. And you know yeah. I have always been just absolutely uh, just uh, fascinated and in love with your talent, man. Thank you, Chris. You are, I I've, I've been in town over 20 years and I don't know anybody else I met along the way that I was so intrigued with. Yeah. You are just one of the the most talented guys who ever came to town, Man. and a sweetheart too. Thank you, dude. That's and, that's uh, beautiful. So I everybody listening, um, he's going to be touring. John Paul White. Yeah. You'll see him somewhere around you. Um, do yourself a favor and go see something fantastic. And uh, thank you for being on Pitch List, man. And have a great show tonight. Thank you, dude. Okay. See ya. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pitch List. And don't forget to head over to our YouTube page at Pitch List Podcast 
to watch exclusive performances from this episode. And if you like the show, be sure to follow us on social media or head to pitchlistpodcast.com for more content and updates. Thank you, and we'll see you next time on Pitch List.